welcome to another Principal of Hospitality podcast. I'm your host, Sean DeVries. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode. Now, this is the second part in a special three-part MCF symposium breakdown with our friends at Worksmith. Now, as I said, this is part two. So, this has got Will Edwards and Kate Rowlands on this particular podcast. And we've got the head of marketing from Worksmith, Jane Ryan, to tell us even more about this podcast. Hey, Jane, what can we expect from this one? Okay, so this one is all about getting more Australian spirits into the speed rail. Now, that actually turned out on the day to be a really, really interesting topic to dive into because it's very difficult. Uh, A lot of people know there's a lot of tax issues. So we've got two great speakers here, one who comes from Archie Rose. Will Edwards is the founder and uh, his company has just released a spirits designed specifically for the speed rail. So they know all the challenges of making this happen. The other one, Kate, she works for Never Never down in South Australia. She has a wealth of experience in hospitality and she really knows how to get brands into people's glasses. So this one is phenomenal if you're wondering how to get people drinking more Aussie spirits. Awesome. Well, I hope you really enjoyed the podcast and we'll get into it right now. Thanks, Shane. Okay. Um, Welcome back, everyone. I hope the punch and the spritz are treating you well. Um, That spritz is actually our homegrown non-alc and is definitely my favourite for when I'm not ready yet in the day. Um, Anyway, we are kicking off now with our second panel talk. I'm really lucky to be joined on the stage by Will Edwards and Kate Rollins, um, and I'm going to let them introduce themselves in a second. But So what we're talking about today is Australian spirits in speed rails. So that, that concept of moving volume for Australian spirits and how we get more of it. So how we compete against the Gordons and the tanks of the world and how bars can really support our local industry. Um, so I'll let the guys introduce themselves. Do you want to go first, Will? Sure. Um, so my name is Will Edwards. I founded Archie Rose back in 2014, really. Um, quick timeline, left my old job mid-2013 and then spent the better part of, of two years setting it up. And then we launched the business in early 2015 with obviously single malt whiskey, rye malt whiskey, um, a gin and a vodka, and then we've gone on to make um, rums and honey spirits and whatever Vegemite spirit is. So, yeah, it's been a hell of a journey, but great fun um, and really excited to be here. These are on, right? Yeah, it's on. Yeah, yeah. Lovely. Um, hi, guys. Uh, my name is Kate Rollins. I'm the general manager of hospitality for Never Never Distilling Co. down in South Australia. Um, I have been in hospitality for 21 years, um, starting off in my native home town of Christchurch, New Zealand, um, then going to Dublin, spending some time in Brighton and London, the UK, and then moving over here six years ago, six and a half years ago. And you're now based down in Adelaide, right? Yes, down in McLaren Vale, yeah. Yeah, cool. Okay, so what I'd like to start this chat with is, I guess, to just nip in the bud the the conversation around tax with Australian spirits because I feel like we all um, see these sorts of, like, talks about it or have a a conception in our head that uh, Australian spirits are, like, more heavily taxed than anything. And and I was looking today at the Australian um, Distillers Association, the conference everyone's sort of just been to, who put up a little um, diagram where they sort of had, you know, for one standard drink, um, a gin is going to be taxed like $1 something, whereas wine is like, you know, 24 cents, beer is 39 cents or something. So just wanted to get a perspective from you, especially with Adachi Rose, of like what are the tax limitations with making spirits in Australia and does it affect how much you can then get a bar to um, pay for your spirits? Yeah, so it's a good question. I mean, to give you some brief context, um, the the tax on spirits in Australia is the third highest in the world. Um, and it goes up every six months with, with roughly with CPI, which means the past couple have been some really big whacks of increase. Um, it's currently $97.90 per pure litre of alcohol. Um, 
and yeah, to, to give you the comparison, I mean, the, the bottom end of the spectrum, um, if you talk, talk about one standard drink, so one standard drink of cask wine, there's six cents of tax. Um, one standard drink of spirits, there's about $1.27 um, at, at 40% ABV. So yeah, there's an enormous tax burden. Um, it plays into things in different ways. I'll, I'll very quickly talk about something that is important, but then get back to the rail. So one of the challenges is, the best settlement terms you can get with the ATO is 21 days end of month. So you've got to pay the tax 21 days end of month after you move the product out of your bonded warehouse. But you're never going to get payment terms that good with your major customers. So you basically got to find the cash to bankroll your, your excise payments, which increases you grow, which is great. But then you need more and more cash um, before you actually get paid by your, your customers. Um, so that's a challenge in the, in the rail. I mean, we just launched a new range fundamental spirits. So, you know, you might know our core products. We got a, a signature dry gin at roughly 80 bucks retail. Um, the straight dry gin, which is the fundamental spirits is sitting at 64 retail. Um, and the true cut vodkas at 54 retail, I think wholesale, it's about high thirties or 40 bucks. So it's sharp, but on that vodka, for example, there's $28 of tax. So there's 28 bucks of tax and then we're trying to wholesale it at high 30s. You've basically got $10 for all your cost of goods, all your overhead, you know, the margins of all the people in between if you're going through a distributor and then a wholesaler before you even get to on-prem. Um, there's not a lot of money in the middle. So I think that's probably just a summary on tax. Yeah, totally. But how, how does like someone like Gordon's what are they dealing with? Are they dealing with the same at that, that end tax? Yeah, that's a really good segue. So the one thing I would say is there's huge disparity across categories. So wine actually is on a completely different system. It's not, um, it's not volumetric. It's not based on the amount of alcohol in the, in the liquid. Beer is on the same system but a lot lower. But within spirits, it's a level playing field. So I think the one thing to be aware of is that it's not as though Australian spirits pay, pay more tax than international spirits. Within Australia, all spirits pay the same tax. Um, I think something like Gordon's, what you've got is massive economies of scale. I mean, Gordon's is made in Western Sydney without stills. Is it? I believe so. Um, someone can, from Diageo can clarify that, um, but I'm, I'm fairly confident about that. And so, you know, when, you, when you're manufacturing in that way, at that level of scale, with that buying power for your packaging and things like that, you can just have insanely sharp cost of goods. Um, and I'll pause there because it goes into sort of the, the rail and things like that. Yeah, yeah, cool. Okay, I think that's a really nice background. Um, okay, so we've kind of got maybe a level playing field in some ways, but obviously in other ways we are knowing that if a venue is going to pour an Australian spirit, they might be having to charge a, a slightly higher cost to their customer. So, Kate, I'd love to bring you in there because I think with your amazing venue background and experience, do you see like easy ways that, that maybe bars can – work on educating their customers to want to pay that bit more to drink Australian as soon as they come in and order. Like they're just ordering a gin and tonic. How do you then go, okay, yes, but it's not – I keep saying Gordon's. I feel bad. Um, <laughs> beef eater. Um, it's going to be Never Never or it's going to be Archie Rose. Or it's going to be Four Pillars. And, and how can we quickly have that conversation to, I guess, upsell something that's already – they're going to be served? I think there's probably two parts to that, right? The first is um – We've got to find a an Australian spirit or an Australian distiller that fits in with the culture that, of the venue that you're running or fits in with the story that you're trying to tell to your customers and fits in with the story that you're trying to train your staff on as well. Um, once you've found that producer that, you know, and that could be 
Archie Rose or Never Never or, you know, Four Pillars, or it could be a new small guy just down the road or a friend of a, you know, cat's mother's husband's sister's wife that suddenly started making gin because everyone seems to be making gin at the moment or any kind of spirit. Find the person that speaks to your story best and then go to them and see what they can help you with, whether that is supplying um, the product in bulk format rather than bottles, which obviously helps to bring that you know, the, the leader cost down, um, whether that's getting them into your venue so that they can spend time with your team to learn about the culture and the story, the storytelling side of it, whether that's going out to actually visit the place where it's made so they can understand, they can, you know, your team can taste and smell and understand the, the ethos and the terroir of where that product is coming from. So when they go back to the customers, they can then have that really kind of genuine conversation as opposed to, you know, again, the Diageo rep came and told us about Gordon's and here's the story that we're going to tell you that we've been told on a, on a slideshow. So. so bartenders are still the best advocates for moving product in that way? Oh, 100%. The customer facing, right? Like they're the ones who are going to have a favourite, whether that's something that they like to drink, whether it's a flavour profile they enjoy. Um, you know, a lot of the, the venues that we work really closely with, they're built on relationships. So they've met Sean, they've met Shay. Um, they, they have those kind of like um, constant interactions with them. So they're selling, not particularly from a price point of view, the bartender are never going to sell because they know it's the cheapest product. They're going to sell something they're passionate about. So that one-on-one with them is so important. Yeah, definitely. Okay. And Will, when we're looking at Archie Rose in particular, obviously you guys have just got that fundamental range. Previous to launching it, were you able to get into speed rails or was that something that you weren't even aiming for? Like you were sort of going cocktail menus perhaps? Yeah, yeah. I think the – and just to clarify, like Diageo is great by the way. I think we're just using them as an example because they're the biggest. Um, but there's nothing wrong with Diageo. So – I think the thing is that um, the other thing that's really important is the responsibilities on us as producers to actually get something out there at a price point that makes it commercially viable for you to pour. Like, we're not sitting here going, you know, oh, you know, you should be pouring Australian and you got to tell the story and all this sort of stuff. Like, there's that aspect to it. But then there's a massive, there's a massive part of it that's on us as producers to just recognise the commercial realities of running a venue and the fact that, it's going to be very difficult to justify pouring our signature range, which wholesales, I think, for you know, it's in the 50s, like mid-50s um, wholesale list. It just, you know, there's only so many venues that can do that. It's really tough. And so for us, when we were, when we were focusing on developing this fundamentals range, you know, we, we started from the perspective of there's just commercial realities of creating a spirit that can actually go into the rail at the price point it needs to, to be able to have it poured sustainably. Um, and for us, I think what we were trying to do was match the commercials of the big guys, but then also come in with the story of, well, firstly, this is way more sustainable. It's not being shipped from the other side of the world. You know, you're supporting local manufacturing, you're supporting local jobs. You've got much more transparency over how the spirit's made um, and you've got traceability up the supply chain. So, you know, we know where we buy our botanicals from. We know where we get our glass from. Like there's a lot of, um, you know, we're big on ethical sourcing. So we sort of investigate where things come from. And so for us it was, well, if we can get the commercials right so that at least we can open the door to have the conversation and go, you know, we appreciate how critical the, the financial side of things is to venues, we can match that and then we can also add you know, um, transparency and traceability and sustainability and, you know, bring your staff to the venue and we'll do education stuff and tours and pop-ups and, like, all that value-added stuff. I think that's where you start to get to a really great proposition. But it took us seven years to get there. We, we had to build another distillery to get the cost of goods to a point where we could offer um, the product at the right price. We had to design it from the ground up. 
Um, you know, you can't use cork because the corks cost like a dollar ten each. You got to use screw caps. Like you really have to think it through. Um, and so, no, we never. To uh, sorry, to an actually answer your question, we never really tried to get the signature range into rail. Um, it was always cocktail and and back bar. Um, and we had this plan to launch this fundamental series. We actually fully designed it to final art two years ago and then didn't launch it because um, we didn't think we got the pack right and we didn't think the brand was strong enough to carry it. And then we only launched it recently. But yeah, it was a real start from scratch, start with the commercials and then work in all the other components. Yeah, Yeah, of course. Um, Kate, do you think there's a, I guess, like a, a desire in the, in the industry from the, you know, the bars that you've worked in and also the ones that you kind of now interact with um, to want to, do, to be shifting more Australian product? Like, do you think that education piece is done or do we still have more work there as well? Um, I think it's really interesting to kind of look at the market where it is now post-COVID because I think pre-COVID there was a real desire to be, you know, as much Australian, as much local as you possibly could and it was almost moving in the direction of it doesn't matter if it costs a little bit more, if I can make it work, I just want to be able to sell local, I want to be able to support Australian, um, which was fantastic. You know, like I used to run a venue in, in Adelaide years ago that um, we had um, Nick Baxter come down. He brought this beautiful range of Archie Rowan stuff. Um, it was the Japanese Four Seasons gin. He came down, told us the story went through loads of that with our customers because the team was super excited about it. We had to charge a premium for it, but they loved it. And it was all part of that kind of wanting to just do a little bit more and be a little bit more, more local. Um, and then I think, unfortunately, the reality of the last couple of years um, and I think the reality of what is about to come, you know, like I don't think financially the, the market out there is in a particularly strong place at the moment. I think we're about to come to some really difficult trading times. Um, and so I think, you know, it's been survival mode. So you go back to where, where the money is, you go back to where the GP is, you go back to where the margin is, you can rebuild your business after the last couple of years if you're lucky enough to still be open. Um, and I think in saying that, I don't think there is any shame in any of us going to a big brand who's got deep pockets that can give us a little bit of money or give us support or we can sign up to some kind of agreement with them because sometimes if it comes down to like your business surviving and being able to pay your staff and that's what you have to do to, to get through like you just do it you know um, but like Rob was saying earlier maybe it's only a proportion of what you, you sign off and then you have say 40% of your, your your back bar to be able to play around and support, support the locals um, so I think that we are we're starting to see that kind of shift back towards premium local stuff now, but I think it's still pretty tough trading conditions out there, unfortunately. Yeah, um, I'd love to ask both of you. Do you think then for the stuff that is still maybe not like speed rail price yet, uh, is cocktail menus the aim for our Australian spirits for the next bit of tough financial time? Volume's the aim. Like, it's got to be where we can find find the volume. Um, and also supporting the partners that we work with who, again, understand our story and where we come from and who can kind of help with that storytelling um, element. You know, I think part of what's going to happen out there is that, you know, the ABC was saying this morning that disposable spending is massively down. So we are going to see a reduction in either people going out and spending less when they're out um, or they're going to reduce the number of times that they go out. So when they're going out, they'll still spend the same amount of money, but they might only do it once a month as opposed to once, you know, every week. Um, and so potentially we've got a market who are educated customers, who understand the, the products we're selling, um, who really want that storytelling element, and they'll be happy to pay a little bit more, which is where we kind of, you know, hopefully slip in there yeah i think it's a journey right and and um you know maybe it wasn't the message you're expecting to hear maybe you're expecting to be like yeah australian spirits in this in the rail but you know what, what you were saying before that it's there's a real um 
realism and and a practical view um, and an understanding of of what it takes to run a successful venue that that most of the producers have you know a lot a lot of them have come from venue or have venues and understand what it's like and you know for us I think when Australian spirits first kicked off you know you had a lot of the Tassie brands out there and you know it's like 300 bucks for a bottle of whiskey you know that's going on the back bar it's not going in cocktails it's being poured by the nip you know for a high price and then you know the industry's evolved and we've been able to get products that can go into the um, onto the cocktail list and like you know really start to move some volume and now we're starting to see some some products get to the point where can where they can get in the rail I mean you know we've got the gin and the vodka you've got Starwood twofold which obviously in the whiskey category was the first product to really get there um, and we've got a product you know put the plug in we've got a product launching at the end of this year which I highly recommend um, called double malt whiskey which will be about the same. Um, but it's this evolution, right? It's this journey. And, and I feel as though you then have really nice tiers as to how you can um, support and communicate and um, grow the Australian spirits industry from the rail, you know, onto the cocktail menu, onto the back bar, you know, onto the top shelf. Um, and it's just about, I guess, um, mutual support where you know we're realistic as to what what we need to do to be able to to give the the hospitality industry the product to be able to have those conversations and then and then support them in having those conversations and then from the industry obviously we're looking for that um that buy-in to come on that journey with us but it's definitely a long-term journey for the industry yeah definitely do you um and again i think maybe both of you would be good to answer this think that i guess when we're growing the australian spirits industry because i always remember those that fact that like the most drunk spirit in australia is scotch and i just can't get my head around it because i've never worked in a bar or been in bars where i see people drinking scotch it, it must be at home on the couch whatever the people are doing I, I find that like just so mind-boggling that like johnny walker red label is the most drunk thing here right so are bars still the front line in terms of growing the australian industry or is it retail and people sitting on the couch i mean I still fear so pre-COVID, you wouldn't even have to pause. I mean, the on-prem is definitely what's building the awareness, driving the trends, um, helping build your brand, right? And then the off-prem is where you could do volume at scale with good efficiencies. As in, you know, you can put a range review in with Endeavor and go get eight hundred BWS stores, and away you go. Um, COVID, obviously put a little bit of a blip into that. And I actually think over COVID, what replaced the on-prem was e-com. E-com became like the on-prem of, well, the world went digital. So that kind of makes sense, right? You know, and then you had on-prem going going digital with, you know, bottle cocktails and things like that. Um, I think it's come back. You know, I, I think it's probably not at the same level as it was because I think, again, through COVID, the off-prem retailers got a lot more savvy in driving trends, um, picking up on the education theme that the you know, bar community used to champion. Um, but no, I, I definitely still feel as though it's, you know, it's the bar community, it's the bartenders um, that are able to have, outside of us directly, like as a brand and our brand ambassadors, the bar community is able to tell the story the best. Um, and I still feel that's, that's the case, even post-COVID. Yeah, absolutely. Like the hospitality community is where we, you know, where we meet our new customers for the first time, right? Like we know for a fact that, you know, DTC is huge over the last couple of years. We know that online spending has definitely dipped. We know that newness in categories is kind of what is driving that kind of um, revenue going forward. And we know that um, 
bars and, and venues out there are constantly asking us, like, what's new, what's new, what's new? I've just realised I also haven't done the plug for the brand. We also have our um, Triple Juniper is available. They go totes, which brings the pouring price much down. Please contact your preferred representative. Yeah, we get in trouble if we don't do that. Yeah, I, get a, I get a text message going, you didn't mention the new product. <laughs> Amazing. I don't know. Do we have any products to plug, Michael? No. <laughs> um, okay. Well, I'd love to know now, just with the fundamentals range, Will, what are the different, like, when you're developing a range for a speed rail specific, yeah. are there certain flavour profiles that you've got to go down? Like, does it have to be as classic as they come or can you still bring that, like, new world? So, basically, for background, um, I used to work for Diffit's Guide and we have, like, online tasting, right? And Simon Diffit used to taste every spirit that came his way. And he would always classify Australian gins as new world. Like that was just, you know, he's an English guy sitting there going, this isn't like a London dry to him. So I was wondering, yeah, with the fundamentals range, where you go with those flavour profiles. Yeah, so, I mean, we had to consider it from the ground up and I'll skip through stages, right? But it was about, well, if we're going to hit the right price points, get into rail, how do we have to tweak the manufacturing? And, you know, there's less of the labor-intensive and expensive, you know, cold distillation using the vacuum stills. It's a bit more traditional. And then obviously pack is very different, like lighter weight glass, no corks, use screw caps, like all this sort of stuff. When it gets to liquid flavor profile, I think you need to consider what the goal is, what the goal is right? And the goal for that range is to get as many people as possible drinking and appreciating Australian spirits. And that's genuinely the goal, right? The next tier down for me is Archie Rose specifically, but the goal, the, the high-level goal is Australian spirits. I mean, last night I was out of the venue, didn't stock Archie Rose, I had a four pillars, you know, so that's what we're going for. If that's what you're going for and you're trying to take market share from the internationals, you need to make sure that the liquid is going to be broadly appealing. Um, so you need, you, you can't make something too divisive. And the way we view it is, at the end of the day, we will never make something that is not true to our brand. Um, and so to answer your question, yeah, there's absolutely native botanicals in there. It, I would still consider it to be sort of a new world, modern Australian classic gin. Um, we need to stay true to our brand, but we also need to consider the market and the fact that if you want to do something weird, limited releases. You know, we can go, we can go into the weirdest possible place. I mean, we made a barrel-aged honey spirit that was actually fermented from the honey from the hives that are at the distillery, right? What the hell's that? But we can, we can do that in limited world. For a product that's going into the rail, you know, you want it to be appealing. You want people to enjoy it. And you also want that to be potentially their first experience of Australian spirits and then encourage them to then trial other products. Yeah, I think also I've just realised we've really focused on uh, gin, particularly I think just because that's where the easiest mark is, right, for Australian spirits is kind of where they started. But, um, Kate, from your, I guess, like venue background and experience, do you think there's anything out there doing it for other I mean like I'm actually not aware what the fundamentals range entails yeah so it's it's uh one vodka true cut vodka one gin straight dry gin and then a whiskey double malt whiskey launching at the end of this calendar yeah 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 cool so I guess yeah I mean like do you think there's anything else out there that we're kind of I guess missing in terms of Australian spirits that could be making a play for this or are we safely in the white category at the moment well I think there's you know like Obviously, whiskey, Australian whiskey is huge. And I, the guys at Archie Rose do an incredible job with what they do. And there's lots of volume coming out. Um, Tasmania in particular has got some incredible producers. Starwood, again, you know, like that is, the, which should be a, a rail Australian product. Um, I think rum is probably a really interesting category to watch out for in terms of Australian spirits. Um, 
there's some really cool stuff coming out that is trying to replicate, um, you know, not necessarily what we can get from overseas, but that kind of quality and consistency and also the volume of supply that you need to be able to um, do to have something in a rail. That's the volume of supply is really important. You can't get something in a rail and then, you know, three months later it's out of stock or whatever. Um, rum and, I don't know, people keep kind of talking about agave growing in Victoria as well, which I know is still white, but, you know, I think that is potentially really interesting. Yeah, we actually um, normally at this conference have an update from the uh, the agave growers up north, but we've, we've done it so many times now, I think we'll just wait for the product at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, actually, that's a really interesting point with rum, Will, because obviously white cane couldn't be classified as rum in Australia. But, I mean, do you think there's anything that prohibits us within our Australian laws to be pushing out a cane spirit that could potentially make it into the rail that maybe doesn't have all that ageing time that Australia requires? Yeah, so... Um there is no Australia doesn't have a category for white rum. Um, the the only definition for rum in Australia is it has to be aged for two years. So there's no white rum unless you make rum and then strip the colour out, which is a bit weird. Um, so we have a product out called White Cane, which would be called white rum anywhere else in the world, but it's called White Cane in Australia. And Husk obviously has has a great one, and the guys at Bricks have one. Um, I think it's a great category. You know, I feel as though there's a little bit of education required because it doesn't have rum on the label, but not too much because white rum as a category globally is really well well understood and, you know, super popular. Um, so, no, I think there's a, there's a huge opportunity there. I feel, yeah, it, it does come down to sustainability in production. Um, and I mean that from a, from a, from a cost perspective. Um, because there's not really too many people producing rum at scale um, and and white rum in particular, or white cane. I'll just say white rum. You guys know what I mean, right? White, white rum in particular, uh, the market's perception of price and value is very different to whiskey. I've always found that a bit odd. You know, like a beautiful aged rum, in my opinion, should be priced similarly to a you know, beautiful aged single malt. Um, but there's actually quite a price disparity and the cost of goods, the cost to manufacture aren't drastically different. Um, and so that makes it a little difficult, but I think there's a huge category. People have though been saying, and I don't really know what to think about this, but people have been saying for a lot of time, a lot of many years, you know, oh, rum's going to be next and rum's going to be next. Rum's going to be next. The you rum know? renaissance. Yeah, yeah. correct. And it, it's been slow. You know, I, I love rum, but uh, I don't know what to, I don't really know what the answer is there. Um, I still think there's massive potential, you know, and, and we're making some rums and the white cane's great. But, um, yeah, it's certainly taken a while to kick off. Yeah, as, as someone who does a lot of content online with cocktails and so therefore is exposed to, like, I mean, like, mass general public, I feel like some of them don't know they drink rum because they'll they'll talk about their favourite cocktails, being mojito, even pina colada, all that kind of stuff. And this is, like, obviously someone who's only got a limited experience of cocktails talking about this, they genuinely don't know they drink rum, which I still, I think that's Bacardi's marketing genius years ago, but maybe has backfired but also into the future. There is confusion in market and, uh, you know, not to bring up Diageo again, <laughs> but um, the Smirnoff margarita. Oh, with, with the tequila essence. What, what are we doing there? You know what I mean? I feel, I get it, right? Like margarita's so hot right now, spicy marks. Um, but it's, you know, it's kind of against the, the education play because you're confusing the consumer and you know I feel to your point a lot of people don't know that they drink rum they actually really like rum you know um and I feel as though to a degree the the crazy growth in uh cans and RTDs and that sort of thing at the moment and everyone jumping on the the can cocktail or the bottle cocktail or whatever whatever it might be trends um 
without real clarity around what's in the in the drink is kind of making it a bit more difficult. I mean, we even had conversations internally. We've got white can cocktails out there, and um, two of them say spritz, and we you know had these quite geeky conversations and I'm out of my depth here about like, well, is it really a spritz if it doesn't have like a wine base or a vermouth or something, something, you know what I mean? And you go, well, no one's going to understand that even if you went down the strict path, but there is definitely a consideration for um, to what degree do you try and be really accurate when you're describing the product versus having something that, you know, broadly speaking, consumers are going to understand. Um, but I but I agree with your point that, that within rum, there's there's arguably a a bigger job to do in education so that people know that they actually love rum. Yeah, definitely. Um, before I open this up, I do just want to ask one final question myself, which is just to crunch it down to numbers. I think it'd be really useful for everyone here. If, so for example, going and ordering uh, an Australian gin and tonic at a bar, like what should we be expecting to pay to get an Australian spirit and tonic as opposed to a Diageo and tonic? Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> look... You know, I don't want to be dictating numbers to to people that operate venues. I mean, the venues are all really different. It depends where you are. It depends what your rent is. It depends on your, your service. Like, there's there's a real disparity, right? Um, I mean, you walk into a pub and you get a gin and tonic and a little fresh lime is very different to you walk into a high-end cocktail bar in the middle of the CBD and away you go. So, you know, I don't I don't really want to say, like, this is what it should be priced at, but I feel as though, you know, there's definitely the ability to have a modest price uh, difference between your international um, standard gin and tonic and your Australian craft gin and tonic. And I feel as though there's a very um, a very strong story that you can tell there around both sustainability, but then also the, you know the provenance, but more from a more from a traceability perspective, you know what's going into it, you know how it's made, you know it's made in the right way with real ingredients. Um, and you know you're supporting the industry that's, you know, mutually supporting each other. So, you know, I feel like a premium there would absolutely not be to the detriment of volume. Um, but, you know, I don't want to be the one that's sort of saying what, what, what it should be priced at, yeah. That's fair enough. Kate? <laughs> I am also going to err on this side of not telling people what they should charge. Um, but I think everyone has their own margins, right? Like, I believe that our products are premium um, and I believe that they should be served with a premium tonic in a beautiful glass with beautiful iceware that comes out of a really expensive machine with beautiful fresh citrus if it's in season um, served by a really talented bartender that is getting paid exactly you know what they should be being paid if not more than they should you know than they're worth um, and in a beautiful venue where the rents are high and overheads are high and everything's tough so um, I think that the price is what makes sense to your business and what your customers are happy to pay. That's fair enough. Okay. <laughs> Does anyone have a question for the guys that you'd like to ask about Australian spirits or getting them into rail, cocktails, anything? Or one, one at the very back, Tim? Hello. Um, I have a question with regards to diversifying the brand's portfolio so or product range, so having going from a gin to a rum or cane, would you or have you found it more successful to go to market with those products with similar messaging or do you need to diversify the messaging for each one? 
It's a really good question. Um, <clears throat> and when I was starting Archie Rose, I had a lot of people with way more experience than me tell me that multiple categories under one brand is a terrible idea and it will never work and no one has ever done it and name a successful brand out there that's done it. And there wasn't one, so it was a fair point. Um, and you know, we haven't made it yet, so they might be right. But to your question, uh, we started from day one as a multi-category brand, um, all under Archie Rose. So we were laying down casks of single malt and rye, I think, the week before we started making gin and vodka. Um, so we've had that since day one. Obviously, in the market, the white spirits have been more prominent because the, the whiskies have been maturing. Um, but what we always say is that, you know, producing spirits across categories allows you to take techniques and um, even occasionally ingredients from one category and apply them to another to make better spirits in both those categories. Um, so we feel as though it really makes us better distillers to make spirits across categories. In terms of going out to the market, it makes it more complicated, but provided you can be clear on your messaging, we've actually found that it's been really beneficial, particularly as we've gone for more of the high-volume rail-style um, opportunities. I mean, we've had multiple instances recently where we've been pitching for supply to big festivals and events, um, and... We're doing one. I don't know if it's public. I don't know if I can say. I need to ask the team. We're doing a great one in Melbourne soon. Um, but we've we've been up against uh, submissions from individual categories. So they had a gin sponsor and a hard seltzer sponsor and a rum sponsor and a whiskey sponsor and a vodka sponsor. And we've been able to go in and go. Well, we can do all of the categories. Um, and then you've only got one supplier to deal with and one you know contract to manage. And it's all a bit simpler. And we've had a lot of success um, that way. And then also, from a venue perspective, the same sort of thing. You know, we can look after the white spirits for your rail, and then come November, we can also have a chat about the dark spirits. Um, and, it, and for us, more and more, that's becoming a, uh, a positive for us as a, as a business. I think in the early days, it was a bit more complicated. Um, but as we're refining how we actually go to the market, and as we've got spirits that are both not just broad, range as in cross category but also depth from super ultra premium through to rail um, having that diversity means that we can just make it simpler for our customers and yeah that's that's proving to be really great anything else um off the off the back of that one just around the education that you guys were talking about before um what have you found has been the sort of the most crucial elements of that education process for, for a consumer, that is, especially, like, obviously, gin is is, um, is fairly mature now, but looking at other categories, what are the kind of the main ingredients you, you look to educate consumers with? That is also um, a great question. Um, I think we, we've already found that kind of um, education of consumers, from for our brand anyway, has actually been um, more about the new products that we've been bringing out that don't necessarily sit in, in the gin category. Um, we're re really well known for our gin products, um, which is fantastic, but I think what we've found real great consumer engagement and people wanting to find out more about the weird things that we do, I think we take a really different approach to our diversification of our category. Um, and it's more kind of a, a case of, here are some cool people who are doing some cool stuff that we want to make a cool product with. What do you need? Let's figure out if we can make it work. You know, like our dark series range is a really good um, example of that. The very first was the Amaru made with the guys in Black Pearl here. Um, shout out to Black Pearl. Um, and, you know, one of the most recent ones we did was uh, an Australian absinthe with a Van Gogh um, 
uh, exhibition that's touring around the country at the moment, which we would never have made in Absinthe on our own. Um, like, you'd just be financially crazy to do it. Um, but how cool is it to have an Australian Absinthe now that, you know, bars can use and consumers are just like, what is this? How do you make it? Where does it come from? So I think that kind of um, education piece comes around figuring out what people get excited about or just throwing whatever you're making out there and hoping that they get excited about it and that they want to know more. Yeah, it, it also depends who you're speaking with because you know, we try to be as accessible as possible and we don't, we don't want to make any assumptions around people's level of spirits knowledge. So you know, we, we started from a, a base of just wanting to get people involved in production. I mean, that's why the original distillery could walk through it at all times. It's got a walkway in the middle of it. You can see what's going on. And then you know, we did things like tailored spirits online where you can play with the botanical distillates and create your own bottle of gin on a single bottle scale. So you really feel like you're... You know, you, you sort of, that's digital, but you can also do it physically, getting your hands dirty and in production. And so you can start that conversation from the very beginning of like, what are spirits, how are they made, you know, what's involved, and then you can ratchet up through all the levels of, well, why does single malt have, why does your single malt have six malts in it? And, you know, what's roasted malts? And right up to the gnarly conversations around, like, we're developing our own yeast strains and, we we made two new enzymes with the world leader in enzymes. So if you want to get if you want to get crazy, we can get crazy, right? But I feel like just a willingness to be very open about the conversation around spirits with anyone that wants to have it, right? And it might be the first they might have never had a spirit before. They don't know what's in it. And for us, you know, it's that accessibility and openness to um, start the conversation with anyone at whatever level they're at, and just um, give them more tools to. Enjoy great Australian spirits. <laughs> Thanks for tuning into this special episode of Principle of Hospitality. I hope you definitely enjoyed that one. And as we said at the start of the podcast, you can find more about Worksmith at worksmith.io. Now, always, we'd love you to share and comment and like and do all those things to make sure this podcast gets heard by more people in the hospitality industry. So we really appreciate you doing that as well. Until next time, stay well, everyone.